Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Samuel Foster, co-organizer for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. Study Group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. On this episode, Jakob Benesch, Associate Professor of Central European History at UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, joins us to discuss the rural-urban divide in Habsburg and post-Habsburg Europe. Jakob, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of history? Hi, Sam. Well, thanks for having me on the program. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I suppose my interest in modern East Central Europe was sparked during my uh, graduate studies at the University of California in Davis, uh, where thanks to my PhD supervisor, uh, William Hagen, I was, I was steered away from doing 17th century Germany, which is what I originally intended to uh, focus on and uh, looking at Czech-German relations in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I remember Bill uh, remarking that, that it's German history is a very crowded field uh, and uh, East Central Europe topics involving Slavic languages and peoples is, is definitely a little bit less crowded. And uh, he um, suggested that I, that I go in that direction. Uh, so I became interested in modern nationalism, which is of course a kind of leitmotif of the whole field, uh, but also in, in uh, topics in, in class history, which um, kind of working class history, which of course had been the, the focus of communist era historiography uh, in East Central and Eastern Europe, um, but was also um, subject to kind of the ideological distortions of that, of the era there. Um, and so that's, I guess, that's how I got interested in, in my first major book project, which was, which was on nationalism in, in the workers' movement of, of Habsburg, Austria. And uh, now I've kind of moved away from the city and, and gotten into the countryside. And, and um, the reason I moved in that direction uh, was when I was working on my first book, which is called Workers and Nationalism, I, I was struck by the kind of um, animosity and, and scorn that social democrats had for, for uh, the countryside and for, for peasants, even though many of their rank and file, many of their members had originally come from rural areas. So there's this interesting tension between uh, the kind of the rural origins of a lot of uh, socialist workers, uh, but also their kind of um, deep hatred or mockery of the of the countryside. 
Um, and, and then, so, and then I was working on the kind of final chapter of that book, which was about the first world war and looking at, at collections of documents. And I was uh, struck by mentions in, in the documents of a kind of uh, sort of mysterious organization in rural areas called green cadres. These were deserters who, who armed themselves and organized for self-defense in the last year of the war. And uh, that was the kind of way into my uh, new project, which is focusing on the peasantry and, and rural areas, because it, it turned out actually that these green cadres were a quite a more widespread phenomenon than, than scholars had, had appreciated. Uh, at least that's how it seemed. There was a lot of talk about them in the 1920s. There were a lot of novels written about them in the 1920s in various languages, and and there were reports about them from all over the monarchy. Um, so so I, I I kind of saw a, a an, an interesting topic that that hadn't um, been explored really, and and it was very rooted in rural areas, very peasant, very peasanty, and and that's kind of what brought me to where I am today. Your research broadly focuses on the territories that um, came to constitute Central Europe, particularly as you've highlighted after 1918. For the benefit of our listeners, how would you define this region geographically and what, in your opinion, is its historical importance as a cultural and geopolitical concept? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I actually kind of prefer the term East Central Europe because I think it's a little bit more neutral and and more geographic, uh, less politically loaded. I think both Central uh, and Eastern Europe, um, Central Europe and Eastern Europe are terms that kind of uh, connote political projects or politicized labels. I think Central Europe historically has often kind of implied a zone of, of German hegemony uh, and, and Eastern Europe has kind of served as a, as a way, a, a sort of linguistic strategy of, of marginalizing the Slavic world along with of course, Romanians and Magyars and Baltic peoples uh, away from the civilized advanced West. Um, so I think they're both kind of problematic uh, labels or categories in some sense, although we are stuck with them. And we've had some interesting discussions on the topic of Central Europe and what it means um, in, in and among the, the editorial board of the journal Central Europe, which is an in-house journal, uh, uh, which uh, I'm, I'm a member of the editorial board. And we've been discussing what actually counts as Central Europe and where we should, you know, uh, sort of solicit articles from. Um, and we, we, we haven't really come to a definitive answer, but when I was asked this question about what Central Europe means at a job interview, I kind of said the Habsburg monarchy, which is, which is what I think, um, which is what I think Robert William Seton Watson sort of meant when, when he established the School of Slavonic and East European Studies and, and became the first professor of, of Central European history. But I'm not quite sure how satisfactory that is really. I mean, can, can one exclude Germany really from, from Central Europe? Um, so I, I guess in some ways, Central Europe maybe makes most sense as a, as a sphere of, of German cultural influence, uh, even, if it, if, even if that's a bit controversial. And, and East, 
Eastern Europe as a kind of sphere of, of, of Russian cultural influence. Um, perhaps one could phrase this more provocatively saying that, that Central Europe um, is Germany plus the lands where Germans have on average over the centuries seem to be a bigger threat than Russians, whereas Eastern Europe is, is the zone where, uh, including sort of European Russia, where Russians have on average over the centuries seem a bigger, seemed a bigger threat than Germans. Um, so I guess we're kind of left with relative categories of perception, which is, which is okay with me, but uh, I don't know how well it will play with the, the general public. A fairly prominent theme running through your more recent research, um, as you've again already highlighted, concerns the, concerns and underlying uh, the underlying anxieties that arise when a majority fears becoming a minority. Could you maybe expand a little more on this concept and how it might have applied to rural Central Europe during the twentieth century? Yeah, thanks. I I think um, you know that's that's a that's a theme that, that we were talking about when, when we were first discussing how I might be involved in, in, in this podcast. Um, and I think it's an anxiety that is really at the heart of what often gets called populism, uh, which is a useful term in, in my view, as long as you don't try to call it an ideology. I think it's more of uh, a kind of inclination or, or persuasion which is the term that the American historian Michael Kazin uses. Uh, and in this sense, then, populism can be seen as based on the idea that the people, of course, who is by definition the majority, right, is, is being unjustly treated like a minority or could even become a minority uh, under, the, under the rule of distant or, or heartless or nefarious elites. Um, and this sentiment can obviously be mobilized on a kind of ethnic nationalist plane, uh, tending towards the political right, but it can also be mobilized on, the on a class plane, um, which tends towards the political left. Uh, and I think the boundary between these kind of right and left populisms, populist persuasions, if we wanna use that term, is quite porous actually, and one can easily kind of become the other. Uh, and it takes a very skillful politician to, to kind of make good use of this persuasion. Perhaps, perhaps um, uh, uh, these politicians are in short supply these days. Uh, so, so anyway, I mean, this is not really, this is not only a Central European or Eastern European phenomenon, it's a, it's a global phenomenon. Uh, but I think it has, his, it, it has special historical relevance for, for Central and Eastern Europe uh, in the first half of the 20th century because of the prominence of, of workers and peasants movements in these countries at this time. Um, so for example, in the German speaking lands and, and, and Bohemia, you have these immense socialist workers movements that, that never tire of pointing out that they are kind of the, the healthy toiling majority of the national population, which has been kept out of power by, by um, property elites. And, and in the rest of Central and Eastern Europe, you, you have societies that are overwhelmingly peasant. So it's easy for these movements, uh, which kind of take off across the region around 1900, but, but really hit their stride after 1918, 
It's easy for them to argue that the state and society should be reset, should be reshaped to reflect the peasant majority. Uh, for example, in, in Poland, the, the Polish People's Party, the Stronicvo Ludowe, never tires of, of, of um, proclaiming their watchword, the Polska Ludowa, the People's Poland, which really means peasant Poland. Um, and so these peasant movements can persuasively, at least in their eyes of their followers, claim that they represent the majority, but that they are being treated like a minority, or that the goal of their rivals is to make them into minority. Um, for example, by pursuing policies that forced peasants to leave the land and migrate to cities, turning them into non-peasants, right? And, and, and their political rivals do this uh, by investing primarily in industry, by lowering tariffs on food imports, um, by encouraging the consolidation of small peasant holdings into large capitalized farms, um, thereby kind of making a large portion of the rural population redundant and, and so on and so forth. Um, of course, these peasant movements also face, face huge obstacles to, to realizing what they call agrarian democracy in the, in the interwar period. Um, liberals and socialists are much better organized than they are, and they're almost entirely urban-based. Socialists and liberals, socialists and liberals, um, of course, are fierce, intractable rivals on the terrain of the city, but they can both agree that the city is where modernity happens. The city is where progress happens, uh, where it has to happen. Um, and the countryside is not a place where progress is really possible. And um, it's these urban-based poli uh, uh, political groupings that really um, dominate a lot of interwar governments in the 1920s. Um, of course, in some places like, like Romania and, and Hungary, you have kind of feudal oligarchies that, that, that celebrate rural virtue, but are actually kind of absentee landlords living large in the metropolis. Um, uh, and so basically the odds in most countries are quite stacked against the peasantists in the interwar period, which really only increases their sense of resentment and victimhood and kind of fear of becoming a minority. Um, only in Bulgaria, uh, of course, outside of the, the former Habsburg lands, uh, does a peasant movement actually rule, rule for, for, for four years, 1919 to 1923. Elsewhere, these parties have to make uh, unpopular compromises to get into ruling co coalitions, or they stay in opposition, or they really become less peasant focused uh, to stay in government consistently like the, like the Czechoslovak agrarians. So I think that hopefully that answers your, your question. Let's, um, let's turn now to, the, to this issue of a rural urban divide and, think, and maybe think about it in slightly more concrete terms then. Um, what were the social and economic conditions generally like in these areas prior to 1914 and the outbreak of the Great War, um, specifically, um, as you've kind of highlighted, uh, during a period where the Habsburg monarchy was not necessarily industrializing, but shifting more towards an industrial-based economy. And um, following on from that, what sort of tensions did this create before 1914? Yeah, well, it's, it's a really actually dynamic picture. Um, in the run up to 1914, um, in spite of what um, some kind of proponents of, of ruralism and, and, and detractors of rural areas might say, um, 
things are changing quite quickly in in the aftermath of um, the 1848 emancipation of the peasantry, the, the abolition of the final kind of vestiges of, of feudalism, uh, which happens in 1848 in the Habsburg realms, of course, a little bit later in, in Romania and, and Russia. Um, and in, in the Habsburg territories, peasants become basically proprietors uh, of their land, owners, which of course opens all sorts of new opportunities for those who have good land and know how to use it, but it also creates all kinds of uh, challenges and burdens for for the mind, for the majority really who, who don't have the know-how or the or, or sufficient land. So, so you have indebtedness um, rising very quickly among the rural population. Uh, you have increasing subdivision of holdings, which makes them increasingly unsustainable. This forces a lot of peasants to migrate to the cities, at least in areas where there is a city that can absorb them. So kind of in the, the hinterlands of Vienna and, and Prague and Budapest, um, and then also overseas emigration from other poorer rural areas from places like Galicia and, and Croatia. Um, so you have a lot of movement, you have a changing social structure in the, in the countryside. And to some extent, you, you do have a kind of blurring of boundaries between urban and rural with a lot of people migrating seasonally to work in cities. Um, however, I think you can discern a kind of um, hardening urban-rural divide in two aspects. One is the way in which the countryside is actually becoming kind of more rural in its in its occupational structure. It's becoming more homogeneously peasant because uh, all the kind of all the kind of cottage industries and rural craftsmen that that were so common um, before the middle of the nineteenth century are are really kind of dying out or completely gone in a lot of areas by by nineteen hundred. Um, the sort of weaving piecework that was so important to, to, to certain areas in, in the textile uh, trade, um, that's all replaced by, by factory manufacturing. Um, uh, peasants turned to kind of manufactured goods instead of making them, making them at home, things like clothes, wagons, and, and so on. So, so you have a kind of more homogenous countryside in some ways. Um, and then the other aspect of, of this divide that, that I think is important is, is a sort of growing kind of conservative revulsion towards or, or backlash against these really rapidly expanding urban centers. Uh, dynamic growing cities, Budapest, Prague, um, but also smaller regional centers as well. Um, and, and some of this uh, conservative revulsion or resentment has a kind of ethnic flavor to it too, because uh, it, it looks as if uh, ethnic others or minorities are, are quite prominent in these new growing urban centers and, and sort of the, the, the prominence of, of Jews in, in Budapest is of course a, a classic example of this. Um, you mentioned the First World War and maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I can, I can say that, that uh, this divide, I think at least becomes much sharper during the First World War. Um, and the main reason here is, is the expanded state, um, uh, you know, which establishes all kinds of new agencies and departments to, to kind of mobilize society fully for the conflict or as fully as possible. 
And part of this is essentially ending the free market in the countryside, setting prices, imposing production quotas, and where these aren't met, and of course, quickly, they aren't met, uh, in part because so many men have left the countryside and so many draft animals have, have left and gone to the front. Uh, the state then resorts to forced requisitions of ag agricultural products. Um, and this is all part of a broader state policy to kind of secure consumption for the urban population, especially workers engaged in wartime industry, munitions industry. The workers making the shells have to be well-fed, right? Um, and so peasants come to feel targeted and victimized uh, by the state, which they used to think was kind of on their side as a sort of, you know, especially in, in Central and Eastern Europe, these kind of conservative dynastic states, it looked like they were kind of um, on the side of, of the rural areas, um, but that, but the peasantry in a lot of ways is sort of disabused of that notion during the war. Um, at the same time, of course, all these measures that the state introduces to to secure urban consumption don't really work. Uh, calorie intake plummets in, in places like Vienna, um, Prague, uh, across the German Reich, uh, and, and city dwellers kind of, you know, storm the countryside in droves trying to buy food directly from farmers or even just raiding fields, stealing potatoes and so on and so forth. So, so peasants really feel kind of targeted from, from both sides, from the authorities um, and, and from uh, uh, the, the, the city dwellers themselves. Uh, just a final point on that, I mean, the urban press, of course, makes a big deal out of the, the sort of small segment of the farming population that actually does hit it rich during the war. They, they, there's all sorts of articles about, about peasant families that suddenly have pianos and Persian rugs in their, in their, in their you know, hovels because, because the urban bourgeoisie traded these things in, you know, for, for potatoes or, or some you know, smoked, uh, smoked bacon and, and, and lard and, and, and stuff like that. But, but really we're talking about a, a, small, a small portion of the, the rural population. Thank you. Um, so let's uh, just focus in on two of your key case studies that you've looked at during the interwar period, namely um, the first Czechoslovakia and uh, well, what would later in 1929 be redubbed the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, um, both of which were founded towards the end of 1918. Um, as you've already pointed out in your introduction, uh, one of your one of the kind of um, one of the key phenomena that uh, piqued your interest in this was the emergence of the Green Carders, um, which I think our listeners might be interested in learning a little bit more about. Um, so just Generally, who were these groups and what sort of role did they play within these rural peasant societies during this fairly brief but still fairly chaotic period of instability to, um, at the, towards the end of the First World War and its immediate aftermath? Yeah, uh, the Green Cadres um, are relatively, well, quite unknown still, uh, outside of maybe... Croatia, where uh, they were they were really um, at their largest extent, and and they're they're still kind of um, I think have some kind of resonance in in the public at large. But but essentially, we're talking about arms uh, armed groups of deserters from the Austro-Hungarian army that that started to form at the end of 1917, 
and beginning of 1918. And it appears they formed first in the South Slav lands, particularly Croatia, Slavonia. Then we have reports about them in Moravia, uh, Galicia, Western Slovakia, some other areas, including uh, what's today Slovenia. They're almost all peasant villagers who refused to return to their units after periods of leave. And they band together for self-protection because the, the, the gendarmerie, the kind of rural police force are, are hunting deserters in, in, in these areas. Um, and then from spring 1918, uh, their numbers are really, really swell with the return of, of hundreds of thousands of um, uh, 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 former Austro-Hungarian soldiers from Russian POW camps. Um, and they, these, these men have sometimes witnessed the, the, the Russian Revolution, especially the, the Bolshevik phase, and, and, um, and um, are sometimes radicalized themselves and in general just don't want to return to the front. Uh, it's really difficult to say how many of these green cadres there were, I'd estimate, in, in the kind of scores of thousands across the monarchy. Of course, there were many more deserters who didn't organize. They were just sort of hanging around in their home districts, sleeping at home, uh, and, and just try to, trying to avoid the gendarmerie. But the green cadres, uh, actually organized themselves militarily in a lot of areas with, with at least rudimentary sort of guard units, reconnaissance, provisioning uh, units. In some places, they even dug trenches. Uh, the reports can be exaggerated, but it seems that in, in some areas, they do become sort of mini armies challenging the state authorities, um, especially in, in Croatia, Slavonia. And it's important that they see themselves, because they, they themselves are peasants generally, they see themselves as protectors of their, their families, of the rest of the peasant population. Um, uh, in, in parts of Croatia by summer 1918, they, they basically make requisitions of livestock and grain impossible. They terrorize the authorities, they, they attack gendarmes, they also threaten um, farmers who might have other, otherwise cooperated with the authorities. Um, and so they're, they're kind of an inversion of the Austro-Hungarian army itself in a sort of way, but they're also tapping into this tradition of social banditry in a lot of these regions. So they, they kind of style themselves as, and are seen as uh, uh, these, these, you know, sort of the, the heirs of, of, of bandit heroes from bygone days. So kind of Janosik in, in the Carpathian region, um, or uh, the, the the Hajduks among Croats and, and Serbs, or or the Rokonyaci, as they're called in, in, in what's today Slovenia, um, Betyars in, in Hungary and so on and so forth. I mean, of course, because they don't have really any central organization or leadership, these are really just scattered bands, um, but it's of course extraordinary that they, they all take this name, Green Cadre, um, because they're decentralized, because they don't really have an ideology, there's all sorts of motives and elements among them, uh, some criminal, um, but they clearly helped to erode the Habsburg authority, Habsburg monarchy's authority in the countryside in the last year of the war. Um, and the peasant villagers of these regions often see them as their armed forces, right? I mean, of course, often it's their sons and brothers and even fathers who are, who, who, who are among them camping in the forest and um, challenging the authority. So when the empire actually collapses in autumn 1918, um, it's the green cadres who actually lead a, a, a kind of wave of rural violence on people 
against people whom peasants hold responsible for their wartime suffering. Um, so officials are, are attacked, especially in kind of um, Croatia, Slavonia, Western Slovakia, uh, Galicia, um, along with Jewish merchants. There's a lot of anti-Jewish violence, also land, large landowners, um, manor houses are sacked and looted. Um, and in some places, uh, in Galicia and Croatia, Slavonia, these attacks actually take the form of kind of peasant invasions of, of towns, sort of revenge against, against the, 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 the sort of seats of, of those whom, whom they hold responsible of, of the, the kind of the parasitic towns who had been leeching off the countryside during, during the wartime. Of course, they're not strong enough to, to attack actual cities like Zagreb or Krakow, let alone Vienna or Prague. But that's, that, that, that's kind of their, their sort of um, uh, character and, and outline, broad outlines of this, of this movement. And um, what sort of role did the peasantry and rural society in general subsequently come to play in interwar Central Europe? Did this legacy of antipathy that you've highlighted so succinctly towards the urban center actually persist? Or over time, can we actually discern um, some changes through, for example, better educational opportunities that were available to rural communities and um, even new forms of employment outside of more traditional rural industries? Yeah, good question. Um, after the war, the peasantry, I think, has a much stronger sense of itself and its demands. And I would attribute this a lot to its kind of wartime uh, confrontation with the state, uh, which I just discussed, which sometimes took the form of these green cadres. Uh, it also reflects the, the self-confidence of peasant veterans who, who, of course, over four years, or less, got used to violence and who traveled to faraway places for the first time. Um, and a lot of this energy then goes into um, peasant political parties. Uh, you, you have a lot of, you already had a lot of peasant political movements before the war, but they're, they're massively expanded afterwards. So for, for example, to take maybe the best case, the, the Croatian peasant party has about 15,000 members on the eve of the war, and it has 1 million members uh, by 1921. Um, but there's also a lot of this kind of grassroots radicalism and, and violence. There's, there's banditry supported by the local population, especially in Yugoslavia. Um, there, there are sort of violent seizures of estate land, uh, even in Czechoslovakia, for example, in Southeast Moravia in 1920. Um, there's, there's open rebellion in central Croatia in, in the same year against a, an ordinance to that all livestock, potentially useful in case of war, needs to be branded. Um, uh, so the state, the new elites of these states, of course, know that, that, this, that, that, that the countryside is, is restive, that, it's, um, that, that there's sort of dangerous elements and, and sort of potential for, for even worse things happening. Um, so they, they support land reform, right? They, they support the breakup of, of um, large, large estates uh, and their redistribution among the peasantry. Um, and uh, in some countries, of course, this is much more radical than in other countries. Some, some countries really uh, go much farther. Some countries um, tend to go a lot less far, especially 
especially in those countries like Hungary and Poland, where where um, the local where where the sort of the, the large estates are owned by the by the titular nationality of the state. Um, so so this is kind of one major effect of the peasantry's mobilization, I'd say this this land reform. Uh, but everywhere, I mean, it's sort of introduced by non-peasant parties or, or at least majority non-peasant co coalitions. And so uh, the way it, it, it's, it's more of a political stunt than an actual economic reform. And it proceeds very slowly in every, every country. Um, and it's not accompanied really by, the, by necessary investment in, in agricultural technology or agricultural expertise. Um, so the peasant lives generally do not improve that much. Um, and in some cases during the Great Depression, they actually get worse. So I think that 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 sort of gets to your question about um, peasant um, peasant uh, uh, lives changing in this period. Um, the parties that represent the peasantry try to channel this rural discontent into kind of progressive demands for, for uh, expanded voting rights, increased parliamentary representation for peasant parties, um, for more extensive land distribution schemes, and for investment in, in rural education and agricultural technology. Um, so, so they have a kind of peasant vision of modernity, uh, but it's, it's nowhere is it really implemented. Um, and alongside this kind of, I think, quite quite promising program in a lot of ways, there, there is a, a sort of hard anti-urban resentment, which, which in some places has, has a, an anti-Semitic edge to it as well. Um, peasant leaders and their followers see that the new state governments um, are, are not interested in them, that they're interested in the prestige of new kind of glittering capitals, capital cities, uh, that they're interested after the first world war experience in preparing for, for another war. So they, they invest in heavy industry and munitions and, and mining. They're not really interested in preserving the peasant way of life, even where there's more sort of conservative governments that are celebrating kind of rural virtue. Um, and so the peasant, peasantists uh, have a kind of fear that, that their political rivals are, are, are plotting their disappearance. And, and, and when they you know, get into power, um, it's really only in Bulgaria, but, but they actually institute quite, quite clear kind of anti-urban uh, measures. Um, Stamboliski, the, the, the peasantist leader in, in Bulgaria, actually, you know, he, he introduces this sort of uh, uh, compulsory labor scheme to get, you know, the, the urban bourgeoisie out of the city and working with their hands and toiling in the sun like, like peasants, and, and which is, of course, extremely unpopular. Um, but overall, uh, there, there's a lot of kind of um, there's a lot of ambition. There's there's some quite interesting and and I think hopeful schemes, but there's a lot of frustration too. So when authoritarian rule kind of sweeps this this region completely, except Czechoslovakia by the early to mid 30s, uh, a lot of these peasants are disillusioned and they're 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 ready for more kind of extreme political solutions, both of both of the right, fascism, and also of the left, um, Leninist communism. This, I mean, in light of what you've already said, I think uh, this might come across as slightly more rhetorical, uh, but uh, just thinking about this in light of more contemporary developments that have taken place across this region, specifically in the aftermath of the Second World War, um, what do you think 
what would you say would be this, what do you believe is this earlier period's most enduring legacy? Um, do the various tensions and social anxieties that came to shape Central Europe's rural-urban divide still remain relevant to today? Or is a lot of this, I mean, our listeners might, you've obviously highlighted Poland, but our listeners are probably made more likely to think of, let's say, Hungary under Viktor Orban. Is a lot of that more affectation than actually kind of any uh, reflection of reality? Yeah, historical legacies. It's a big, it's a big question. And um, I'll, I'll just, yeah, focus on, um, I'll just focus on, on this kind of anti-urban sentiment uh, and sort of the present or, or the very recent past. And I would just say that I think there is a language of anti-urban resentment that um, was really shaped by these peasant parties and kind of perfected by these peasant parties in a way uh, in the interwar period that has been mobilized uh, by present day right-wing populists, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, of course, these populist parties, as you sort of suggested, are, are very different than the peasant parties of the interwar period. Um, first of all, the peasantry doesn't exist like it did. Right. Um, all European societies are majority urban now, even though that that shift happened relatively late in some parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, but still, it, you know, you, you have a majority urban population. So, so you don't have really a peasant majority anywhere. Uh, of course, this doesn't stop contemporary right wing po populists from invoking, you know, kind of heartland values with their connotations of of. Um, of rural vitality and, and moral purity, um, and also talking about investment in, in rural areas, um, and sometimes you know following through, at least in relative terms. Um, and so you know this this resentment that that they're channeling uh, is is not only directed or, or not primarily directed against kind of cities and towns as as centers of manufacturing of administration and banking, which is sort of what the interwar model was. It's, it's more specifically against capital cities and other metropolises that are, that are part of a kind of globalized, financialized capitalist system. So, so it's equally attractive to people in provincial cities and commuter, and commuter suburbs and, and, and so on and so forth. Again, this is a kind of global phenomenon, but, but I think that, this, that the kind of animus towards cities has a particularly uh, rich heritage, if, if you will, in East Central Europe. Uh, and unfortunately, there is an anti-Semitic side to it that's, that's quite present in, in several countries. Um, uh, perhaps on a more hopeful note, there are also kind of usable legacies of, of those peasant party politics that can be kind of steered in a more democratic and egalitarian direction. Hard to say, of course. Um, the peasant parties at that time were, were kind of, in some ways, often right to, to challenge the sort of political economic dominance of these cities, of, of the capital cities at that time, um, and arguably were ripe today for a kind of progressive politics to challenge the, the political economic power of kind of metropolitan centers. Um, that is hopefully a politics that wouldn't kind of focus mostly on the sort of multi-ethnic character of these cities, right? Which is often what these populist um, uh, movements, at least in the West, uh, tend to do. Um, 
Yeah, and finally, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that these agrarian movements in, in Central and Eastern Europe were often rather more um, democratic and, and kind of uh, radical than, than those further west. So, so, so potentially there, there are reasons uh, to, to kind of revive elements of their platforms. But uh, as I said before, it would take rather skillful politicians to do that. And finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about this topic? Well, uh, there has been some interesting recent work on these on peasant parties, at least uh, in East Central Europe in, in the interwar period. Um, there's there's an interesting book by by Alex Toshkov. Uh, there's a good chapter by by Robert Bidelow in a recent volume. Um, my colleagues at CIS. Um, Dan Brett and Tom Lorman are working kind of on cognate topics. Um, I'm working on a book that will hopefully be out uh, in 2024 with Princeton University Press. So, so stay tuned. Um, if you happen to be in one of these countries in Central and Eastern Europe in, in uh, the next several weeks or months, I, I'm actually uh, organizing a museum exhibition as part of the AHRC project funding that I have now, um, uh, which is actually called the Green Cadres, this, this exhibition, and it's already opened in Skalica, Slovakia. It's gonna open soon in Varaždin, Croatia, and in Maribor, Slovenia. So, so it could be a nice detour if, if, if you happen to be in the neighborhood to learn a little bit more. Um, but that's, I think that's it for now. Jakob Benesch, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you, Sam.